open a newspaper, which part do you turn to first? I suppose almost everyone takes at least a glance at the front page to see the headlines. But after that, there are certain people, usually, but not exclusively men, who turn to the back page to the sports news. I'm not admitting to being one of them, especially with those kind of headlines. <laughs> what I will admit to, and this may seem very strange to you, is that certainly in the, what are called the quality newspapers, I always look at the obituaries column. Sometimes there's a full account of the life of a famous person along with a picture but more often than not, there's just a few line summary, maybe even just a few words which summarise the life of a person who may have lived over 80 years. You see, the purpose of an obituary is not just to record the events of a person's life, but to assess the significance of that life. And over these past weeks, we've been reading and studying together a section in this book, the Bible, which is a kind of obituary column on some of the earliest people who lived in human history. It's found in the New Testament part of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, which is called Hebrews because it's written to people from a Hebrew or Jewish background. It's worth turning to that part in the Bible. It will help to have a Bible in front of us. It's page there are Bibles in the pews if you don't have one. Page 1209. The 11th chapter that we've been making our way through. And the writer of this letter lists various people from the past with whom his readers would have been very familiar because they came from the Hebrew Scriptures, the what we call our Old Testament. But while the Old Testament gives the facts about their lives, uh, this obituaries column in Hebrews 11 uh, gives the significance of those lives. There's been a lot of debate about who actually wrote this letter to the Hebrews. We can't be certain who the human writer, author was, but behind the book, behind these obituary columns, is a divine editor. What is written here is approved by God. And the way in which God evaluates a life is very different from any purely human assessment. That's why certain famous people from the past aren't even included. While others, who would never have made it in any newspaper, are included here. And the obituaries for those who are listed here are very different from what we might expect or we would have written. If you think about the characters we've looked at thus far in our series, I think we can imagine the kind of obituaries that would have been written for them in the ancient times obituary column. Abel, first recorded murder victim. Enoch, 365-year-old man who disappeared without a trace. Nor, eccentric boat builder and animal collector. Abraham, nomadic pioneer, founder of a nation. But when we turn to God's 
a victory column in Hebrews 11, we find something very different has been written about these characters. And we learn that there is one thing that God prizes above all else in a human being. There is one thing which alone gives a human life significance in God's eyes. There is one essential. The writer tells us what it is in verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, you can be as rich as Bill Gates, as smart as Stephen Hawking, as powerful as George Bush, but unless you are living by faith, it counts for nothing in God's eyes. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that is why the description of every person listed in this chapter, and God willing, we'll make our way through it after the summer break and continue uh, with this. This is the last of this section. Everyone is prefaced by the word faith, by faith. Verse 4, by faith Abel. Verse 5, by faith Enoch. By faith Noah. Verse 7, verse 8, by faith Abraham. That's why we've entitled this series, Living by Faith. So, the important question is, how do you live by faith? That is, in a way that pleases God and meets with his approval so that you're included, as it were, in God's obituaries column. Well, to help us to find out, today we look at the next two characters in our studies who we learn live by faith. A man named Isaac and his son who was called Jacob. Imagine that you worked in the obituaries in the newspaper offices in the Canaan Chronicle and the editor came in one day and said, give me 12 words on Isaac for tomorrow's first edition. You would never have come up with Hebrews 11 verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And what about Jacob? This is what the writer says. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. I think you'd have lost your job on the newspaper if you wrote that kind of copy. Yet, this is what is written about Isaac and Jacob, which God the editor approved for publication and for our benefit. So let's try and understand why and what these verses mean. Because it may help us to live by faith in a way that pleases God and in the last analysis, at the end of your life, only God's approval will really account. <clears throat> so let me suggest, for reasons that we'll see, that the unifying theme between these two characters is faith and the future. And there are three things I want to focus on and I'll give you little headlines which hopefully you'll find helpful and help you to remember. The first of all, we need to look at the two people concerned. And what I want to suggest is that they are contrasting characters. On this Father's Day, we say, do we not, like father, like son. Sometimes that's true, but not always. And not in the case of Isaac and his son Jacob. You couldn't get two more unalike people. So for those of us who don't have a Jewish background and don't know the Old Testament part of the Bible, let me give you a brief summary in which I will try to show how different 
this father and this son were from each other. First of all, we have Isaac. Now, you could call Isaac, Isaac the passive. Almost everything of significance that happened to Isaac, happened to him, was initiated by other people. It began, not surprisingly, as in all cases, with his birth. His miraculous birth. Isaac was a promised child. He was promised to his parents by God and they had to wait a long time before he arrived. Finally, when his father was 100 and his mother was 90, little Isaac arrived. It was such a surprise to them that they looked at him and laughed and they called him Yitzhak, which means he laughs. They laugh with joy. And they say, when our friends hear about this, you know what they're going to say? They're going to laugh. Imagine growing up with a name like Laughter. You're introduced to the party and say, hi, what's your name? Yitzhak. Oh, yes, I remember, yeah. You know? I don't know, perhaps it wasn't easy being called laughter. But it was the faith of his parents that was the crucial factor. We looked at that in Hebrews 11, 11 to 12. The next significant event, which we also looked at, I think it was last week, was his near-death experience, which is also recorded in Hebrews. When he was a young boy, his father took him on a long journey up to the top of a mountain, bound him to an altar, and on God's instructions was about to offer him as a burnt offering. Only when the knife was raised did God intervene and Isaac survived. Once again, he was literally a passive participant in the action. It was his father Abraham whose faith is recorded. And if you want to understand why on earth it was, you need to listen to the last in our series. The next significant event in his life, which isn't recorded in Hebrews, was his arranged marriage. When Isaac got to 40, he still wasn't married. And his parents said, we don't want him to marry one of the local girls who don't believe in God. Let's send someone back to the home country and family and find a girl for him. So they sent a servant on a several hundred mile journey who found a beautiful girl called Rebecca. She willingly consented, came back without ever having met him. And they fell wonderfully in love and were married. But he was hardly the initiator in this. I mean, fathers do a lot for us on Father's Day, but not ma- well, not many of us would uh, ask a servant to go and find us a wife. Uh, later on, we see an example of his timid temperament. At a time of famine, Isaac takes his family and flocks to a neighbouring country. His wife was very beautiful. Isaac was scared that the people would see her, fancy her, kill him and take her. And so he said, let's pretend you're my sister. And it almost led to absolute disaster. And again, only God's intervention prevented it. Hardly the example of a man of faith. And then when he was elderly, his eyesight was failing, he was a victim of a terrible deception. We're going to look at this in more detail. A terrible deception by his wife and younger son. With the use of two goats, read the story, the Bible's full of amazing stories. With the help of two goats, they tricked old Isaac into believing that Jacob was in fact his older brother Esau. So Isaac gave Jacob the family inheritance that really belonged to his older brother. And what happened after that? Well, he lived a very unremarkable life, a lot longer than he expected. And at the age of 180, all that is recorded is his unremarkable death. Isaac, the passive. Now contrast that, and what a contrast it is, with his son Jacob, who we could describe as Jacob, the aggressive. Jacob's aggression began even before he was born. We read that when his mother was carrying these twin boys, they fought in the womb and, and, and Jacob wrestled with his brother Esau to see who could get out first. And he finally emerged, second, and seconds in time, 
holding on to the heel of his brother Esau who came out of the womb first. And that's why his parents called him Jacob, Yaakov, which means in Hebrew, he grasped the heel. Jacob was a grasper. What he was by name, he was by nature. A cheat, an opportunist, always looking out for number one. The first opportunity came when he persuaded his elder brother, was out hunting in the fields, came back totally exhausted, and Jacob was a stay-at-home type. He was cooking this really nice red stew. And his brother said, give me some of that red stew. And he said, well, I'll give it to you in exchange for your birthright. And his brother, being stupid, said, okay, go ahead. And Jacob said, here you are. And so he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Hard to believe, isn't it? But Jacob was there. He was looking out for his opportunity. Worse was to follow, as we've seen. When Jacob, with his mother, deceived his elderly father and cheated Esau also out of his inheritance. And escaping from the murderous intentions of his brother Esau who was distraught when he discovered how he'd been cheated, he ran off under the stars back to his home country and on the first night there God met with him in a remarkable way and made a gracious promise to him that he would be his God. Can you imagine God doing this with somebody? Under the stars there. What's Jacob's response? What well, is still Jacob the negotiator? Genesis 10 uh, tells us... Uh, then Jacob made a vow, so that's the wrong reference, I'm sorry about that. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then okay, the Lord will be my God. And this stone I've set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Genesis 28, 20 to 22. Can you see him? He's still negotiating in with God. He takes 20 years living with Uncle Laban, who was a far worse cheat than Jacob. And again, you can read the remarkable story. And, and a wrestling match with God before God deals with him in a decisive way. And Jacob is given a new name. It's called Israel, which means in Israel, it means he, he wrestles and prevails. He struggles, he fights with God. But he's still a fighter. He's the aggressive type. We don't have time to look at the rest of his story. So you've got these two people. Isaac the passive... Jacob the aggressive, and yet the book of Hebrews said both of them have this unifying factor in God's eyes. They both of them live by faith. Now, why have I taken some time to talk about that? Because one of the most stupid things people say is, oh, well, people who live by faith, religious people, they're all of a certain kind. You know, there's a certain temperament. Or they go back to Freud, you know, they're missing a father figure or something else in their psychology. Or it's all to do with their genes or their environment. The book of Hebrews contains people who all live by faith, who are as diverse as Isaac and Jacob. Look around this church. Probably we have around a thousand people who come through on a regular basis. There is only one thing that unites us together. That is our faith in Jesus Christ. You'll find people in this church from every background, from 40 nationalities, from different educational backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different temperaments, different kind of people. You would never get anywhere else probably in the world people united together on any other basis than their faith in Jesus Christ. But it is that faith that links us together as it did Isaac and Jacob. And as you look more closely then, we've looked at the characters behind it, there's something more precise which also links them together in these verses. What I would call lasting legacies. It might seem strange, given all the events of their lives that we've talked about, and we've only touched on them briefly, that the only thing that is mentioned by faith is what they did to bless other people. Look again at the verses. Uh, 
the blessings they conveyed. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. What does it mean to bless someone? Well, it's a word blessed that we very rarely use in common language these days unless you sneeze. And then you say, bless you. Which is actually short for God bless you and protect you. Although we've forgotten that in the same way that goodbye means God be with you. We rule God out of it. But in actual fact, blessing and to bless originates with God. When God says he will bless you, it means God says, I will place my approval and favour upon you. Blessing means conveying God's approval and favour. See, God blesses all human beings in all sorts of ways that they don't acknowledge. Maybe you don't believe in God or you, he has a back seat in your life. But he still bless you. You're here, you've got health and strength, most of us. You've got food and clothing and a home to live in. You've got the rain and the sun. All these things are blessings from God. But God blesses some people in special ways. We'll think about why in a moment, but just stay with the principle first of all. Way back in the midst of human history, God chose, out of all the human beings on earth, to bless one man and his family. That man's name was Abraham. We've already looked at him in this series. God called him to leave his home in one of the great cities of the ancient world in a place called Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia. And to go to a promised land, God said he would show him. And this is what the Lord promised him when he did this. He said, Abraham, just leave and this is what I'm going to do for you. God's promised blessing to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, the opposite, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham set out on this journey of faith. He lived his life as a wandering nomad with flocks and herds, but living in tents with no fixed abode. But what he did have was of far greater worth than anything else. He had God's blessing stamped on his life and on his future. God's favour, his approval, his promises concerning the future, God's blessing, which he lived by and he died by. And this blessing given by God, notice, was promised that it would be handed on down the generations, from father to son as a lasting legacy. So our, our two verses tell us how this blessing was passed on down the generations. Isaac blessed his sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob blessed his grandsons. That is his son Joseph's two sons. We'll see it in a moment. If you can't work this all out, here's a family tree. All right, very quickly. Abraham and his wife Sarah eventually had the miracle baby Isaac, who inherited the blessing of God through his father. It will come up on the screen, for those who can see a screen. If you can't, you just listen, imagine this. And in due course, as we've seen, Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah gave birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And later, Jacob had 12 sons. The second youngest, number 11, was called Joseph. Most people know about it because of the musical Joseph and the amazing technical dream cult, which is wonderful music and lots of fun, but totally inaccurate. All right, but stay with the Bible story. <laughs> and Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, back to our two verses. 
The two contrasting characters, Isaac and his son Jacob. The only thing the obituary column lists about their lives is that they each did the same thing. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. And Jacob blessed his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, you may be thinking at this point, what's all this big deal about blessing? Laying your hands on someone, saying a prayer. It's only words. But it isn't. It's far more than words. For the words of blessing actually convey God's blessing. A blessing of far greater worth than anything else on earth. I was trying to think of an illustration. It was a Queen's birthday honours list, wasn't it? Most of us missed out again, I guess. But, but there were one or two people who got knighthoods. And they'll go to Buckingham Palace and the Queen put a sword on their shoulders and arise Sir Philip Green for being such a blessing to us in our supermarkets. You know, well... <laughs> and you just say, ah, it's just words. No, it isn't. You've got to call him Sir Philip now. Why? Because the words of the monarch convey real blessing. Power. How much more God's blessing. You see... Today, Mark and Tanya brought little Toby and we prayed for him and we prayed a blessing on him. Toby, Daniel, the Lord bless you and keep the Lord be gracious to make his face shine upon you, give you his peace. No doubt Mark and Tanya want the best for Toby. Good health, good school, got his down, name down somewhere, maybe. I don't know. A good education, a good career, nice wife and family. That's what we all want for our children. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless that's all we want for them. Unless that's the only legacy we leave them. Why, you say? Well, Jesus put it very starkly, the big question. He said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Answer, not at all. No future. No lasting legacy. The only legacy that really counts is God's blessing, God's approval, God's favour. And here's the good news. You don't need to be born, although it's a great privilege, you don't need to be born into a Jewish family to inherit God's blessings. You see, as David told the children, all of God's blessings, all the promises made to Abraham and his family were fulfilled finally in the coming of his own son, Jesus, Born of Abraham's seed. Born of a woman. Born of the Holy Spirit. And now all of God's blessings find their fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, the verse I gave to Mark and Tanya, I was thinking about it, it's a relevant verse as well. We're given every blessing in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Ephesus, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, this is the most important thing you could ever wish upon a person. You can lose everything else, but if you gain this, you've gained everything. You can gain everything else, and you've lost everything without this. That's what Jesus said. So, if this is true, you should be asking at this point an important question. How do I get these blessings? How do I qualify? How can I meet with God's approval? 
not his judgment on my life. So that I have a future that extends beyond the grave. And our verses give us the answer. We come to the third and final part of our verses and focus. Interesting characters, lasting legacies, and finally, I'm trying to think of a good title for this, surprising selections. What is it that links Isaac and Jacob together in our two verses in Hebrews 11? What is it that merits them as each acting by faith? It's not just that they conveyed God's blessings on sons and grandsons respectively. Every family works that way. It's the laws of inheritance, is it not? No, what links them together is that the blessing they conveyed in each case was not on the one you might expect. They were surprising selections. As far as natural law was concerned, the firstborn inherited the family's wealth and titles. But Isaac blessed Jacob, not Esau, with the firstborn's blessings. This is what he said to him. Genesis 27, 28, 29. May God give you of heaven's due and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you, peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and may those who bless you be blessed. That's the firstborn's blessing. But Esau missed out on this blessing. When he discovered it, he didn't say, oh, it's only words. He broke down in tears and in rage because he'd missed out. And he said to his father, bless me too, my father. And Jacob said, I've no blessing for you, I've given it. But finally when he pleaded, he gave him a blessing. But it wasn't the primary blessing, it was a secondary blessing. It's what he said, Genesis twenty-seven thirty-nine: Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above, you will live by the sword, you will serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you'll throw his yoke from off your neck. So why does our verse describe Isaac's blessing on Jacob and Esau as an act of faith? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Why? Because on that dreadful day, elderly Isaac realised that God was working out his will even through disgraceful human behaviour, and he refused to change his mind. R.T. Kendall's little book, Who by Faith on Hebrews 11 says, When old Isaac said to Esau, You are too late, I have given my blessing to Jacob, it was his finest hour. You see, Isaac knew that it was Jacob, not Esau, who was to get the blessing. Even before the twins were born, the Lord told his mother, his wife, their mother, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. That was God's plan. But you see, Isaac preferred Esau. He liked the outdoor type rather than the mummy's boy, Jacob, who stayed at home. He liked the food that he brought him when he went out hunting and brought him his favourite meals. And so he fully intended to go against God's will and he said to Esau, go and get me some animals, cook me a nice meal, come back in and I'll bless you with the firstborn's blessing. But despite his intentions, he actually ended up giving the firstborn's blessings to Jacob, who fooled the elderly man with his bad eyesight 
with a goat skew that his mother made and a goat skin to pretend it was hairy Esau, not smooth-skinned Jacob. Even though it came about through dreadful deceit, this does not condone such behaviour. Far from it. But it demonstrates that God can and will work his will even through the worst that human beings do. You see, faith is recognising what God is doing and agreeing with it. Not resisting it. And Jacob finally realised it. It took him a lifetime. He finally realised that he needed to act by faith and accept whatever God's will was. And it was a lesson that he never forgot. Many years go by and here's Jacob, also an old man, also with bad eyesight, about to die. And he calls his son Joseph in and says, bring your two boys, I want to convey, what? The blessing. He doesn't have anything else. He worships on top of his staff, you know his stick that he carried, the nomad symbol? But he's got something valuable to pass on to these two boys. So Jacob brings them out. You can imagine the scene. Here's elderly Jacob. Some versions say he was sitting on his bed. Here he is sitting there, his feeble eyesight, and Joseph brings in his two boys. Now the right hand conveys the firstborn's blessing. And he brings the boys in, and he puts Manasseh, the firstborn, in front of Jacob here, so that Jacob can put his right hand on him, and Ephraim, the secondborn, on his left hand. And Jacob says, I'm going to bless these boys. And he does something remarkable. Switches his hands and blesses the wrong one. So Joseph thought. It's about the only negative thing that's said about Joseph in the Bible. Joseph is really mad. He says, no, no, Dad, you've got it wrong. You've got the wrong boy. And he takes his hands to move them. And Jacob says, no, no, my son. This is God's plan. The firstborn doesn't inherit Crossed hands. Now, don't misunderstand the principle. It is not as though God writes a new law of inheritance by which the secondborn, not the firstborn, gets the lion's share. In fact, the law of Moses, given to Moses later, the firstborn's law of inheritance is stated. The firstborn got what was called the double portion, which meant twice as much as the rest. No. Both cases are given as an illustration that God's blessings are not received by right, by birthright. And God's blessings and favour are not received by merit. This is of so great importance. Can't overemphasise it. You say, well, how do I get God's blessings? You will never get them by right. Not one of us deserves God's blessings by right. Jacob was a bad lot and so was Esau they were both of them thoroughly sinful and bad so how are God's blessings received not by right nor by merit but purely out of God's grace God's favour what we don't deserve Here's the Apostle Paul writing in that same letter to the Ephesians. He reminds them how they became members of God's family. He says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith 
And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not one person in Charlotte Chapel thinks that God has blessed them because they're better than anyone else. No, all of us, if we really understand the gospel, are amazed that God has blessed us because we're worse. There is no merit in it. So hard to learn because most people think, well, God blesses good people. Oh, God blesses bad people who recognize that. Why did Jesus die on the cross if you could have got there by your own efforts? Why did he pay the penalty that you and I deserve? Why did God the Father, as it were, cross hands and put the curse that we deserved on the head of his Son and the blessing that we didn't merit on us? It's pure grace. And we receive it by faith. We recognize that. And they say, we say with the hymn writer, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. See, Jacob was a thoroughly bad lot who didn't earn or merit God's favour in any way. It took him a lifetime to appreciate it. Faith is agreeing with God and then rather than resisting God's will or trying to manipulate or change things, which Jacob had spent his life doing, it is recognising simply God's will and agreeing with it. So the only thing that's recorded of him in the obituary column is this. By faith, think of all the things that Jacob did. You say, by faith, Jacob wrestled with God. No, by faith, when he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. At the end of his life, he passes on the only legacy that will last, which he received by faith, God's blessing. Well, you say, what about Esau? Well, he was no better than Jacob. But was he doomed without a choice? Am I doomed without a choice? Am I pre-programmed to miss out on God's blessing? Well, this book of Hebrews gives you an answer. A very clear answer. And listen carefully. We're almost finished. Esau was fully responsible for his actions and his destiny. So this writer of Hebrews uses him as an example and a warning not to miss out on God's grace. Hebrews 12, 15, 17. Very important verses. See to it that no one misses out, misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessings, he was rejected. He could not bring about a change of mind, literally repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. He was fully responsible and rejected because of his unbelief. His brother simply accepted ultimately, finally, by faith, what God offered to him. And Esau is an example to all of us that we don't miss out on the grace of God. One minute of conclusion. Few of us will make it into the Scotsman's obituary column or any other. And frankly, it doesn't worry me and it shouldn't worry you whether you do or not. What really matters is whether you're included in God's obituary column. And the only way to be included is to live by faith, by faith in Jesus, who died for your sins and rose again to give you a future which the Bible calls Eternal life, future hope for God's soul of the world.
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The word believe is the same word as faith, trusting in what God has offered in Christ. Don't miss the grace of God. Don't miss out on the blessing of God. Let's pray together.